All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. back everybody to our 23rd episode it's late july and things are hot both here on the east coast and on the other side of the planet where the world's premier athletes are competing in the tokyo olympics i have to say sticking with all of the 2020 signage for the games that were put on hold for a year due to the pandemic was probably a pragmatic choice from a financial and logistical standpoint but i personally find it a little questionable i mean we're obviously not in 2020 anymore, so we're just supposed to pretend? Anyway, that appears to be the least of anyone else's worries, as there have already been a number of results and controversies that have created substantially more debate, not the least of which was the PJM Board of Managers announcement earlier this month that they will seek FERC approval for staff's MOPR proposal unedited. Sure, it wasn't exactly unexpected, but it wasn't exactly expected either. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, how are you feeling this month? I'm feeling fantastic, Rory, and it's a pleasure to be here this this morning, this afternoon, whenever folks are listening to this, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, we're in the middle of the summer swing of things. Uh, there certainly hasn't been a summer lull this summer. We are busier than ever here, and PJM and FERC are keeping us on our toes, and we we certainly appreciate that, but uh, got a lot of exciting issues to talk about today, and really looking forward to doing that with our guest. Well, you're absolutely right, Glenn, and it's fitting that we're doing this interview in the summer when the shore is a prime vacation spot and some audience members are no doubt listening while relaxing on the beach and taking in the view because our guest this month has been envisioning the potential just off the coast for quite some time. Would you do the honors of introducing him? Yes, I'd be absolutely honored to. Today, we are joined by New Jersey Board of Public Utilities President Joe Fairdaliso. Uh, President Fairdaliso has been at the Board of the Public Utilities since 2006. He served as a commissioner for several years there, then was appointed president of the BPU in January of 2018 by Governor Phil Murphy. He served under, I believe, four or five governors in the state of New Jersey, you know, serving on the commission for 15 years. He is a former educator. He's a former legislative aide. He's a former mayor, I believe. So he's held leadership positions his whole life. He's uh, also a leader in his current role, serving in MacRock, Nehru, the organization of PJM States, Reggie, other terrific organizations. So, uh, President Fairdaliso, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Well, thank you, Glenn and Rory, for having me today. And uh, I look forward to our discussion. And uh, it's a pleasure always and an honor to represent the state of New Jersey. So I look forward to our uh, time together today. That's great. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us, President. Glenn, do you want to get it started? Sure, absolutely. Like I said, we have a whole host of issues to talk about with uh, the president this afternoon, but we're going to hop right into it and talk about resource adequacy because his agency has been really focused on this for the last year and a half or so. And the, the Board of Public Utilities just wrapped up its investigation of resource adequacy alternatives for the state and came to the conclusion that for now, New Jersey is better off staying in PJM and working through the PJM marketplace um, and the current capacity market rather than leave PJM or leave the PJM capacity market for a fixed resource requirement. 
So President Ferlisa, just let's let's talk about that. How, how did you get to that conclusion and why did you decide what you decided there? It's been a long road uh, since FERC came out with the Moper edict. And one of the positive things that has occurred over time is our relationship with PJM has come a long way in quite a short period of time. And I mean that in a very positive sense. One of the most visible markers of this shift is PJM's position on the MOPR. PJM in, engaged in, in good faith discussions with states like New Jersey throughout the MOPR uh, proceeding and continues to demonstrate responsiveness to the concerns we have raised about MOPR. Our analysis also makes clear that to achieve our clean energy goals in a way that also protects customers, we need regional markets to drive costs down. Regional markets. As the report explains, our resource adequacy report, the board will participate in the PJM stakeholder process and continue our ongoing analysis and evaluation of these critical resource adequacy issues. We have to protect the ratepayer of New Jersey and the state of New Jersey as we go along here. And as I said, I'm so pleased that our relationship with PJM has improved so marvelously over the past year. And I am also optimistic about FERC uh, as, as the composition of FERC changes, I can see a more state-friendly FERC under the Biden administration. I am also encouraged by the administration's positive outlook as far as uh, the mitigation of climate change is concerned. I finally feel that we have a partner in Washington, we have a partner in FERC, and we have partners at PJM which makes our job in New Jersey not only more exciting, but hopefully a little bit easier. Rather than going on our own, we have these partners that we can engage with. Well, President, you must be prescient because uh, your answer there hit on several questions we were going to ask later. So let's parse some of them down and take a few pieces at a time. Sure. First one You've made clear that repealing the MOPR is not enough and PJM needs additional reforms. You, you mentioned that in there. Could you provide in headline form what those reforms look like in total? What, what would it be? Sure. I think today uh, PJM markets at best ignore and at worst work at cross purposes with state policies. We need some way to harmonize our non-negotiable state clean energy goals more directly with PJM regional markets. Regional competition is critical to protecting customers by allowing achievement of our ambitious and critically important clean energy goals at reasonable costs. PJM is a large RTO and covers many different state objectives. We directed our staff here in New Jersey to come up with an option. The integrated clean capacity market, which would be the solution we need. But as the report explains, we are open to other options. We look forward to working with PJM and stakeholders throughout phase two of the capacity stakeholder proceeding to determine an optimal pathway. 
to allow for competitive procurement of clean energy attributes. We are hopeful that PJM stakeholders will work in good faith to develop a market-based solutions that can truly accommodate the needs of the customers of New Jersey. And as we continue to pursue our independent analysis, in the event that PJM process fails to reach a satisfactory conclusion. But we are optimistic, I am, that working with PJM, we can find reasonable, agreeable ground to move forward on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned the ICCM in there, and then you, you you said the board is open to other alternatives. Do all of those alternatives, are all of those alternatives competitive concepts, or are you also open to, to things that, that are ne- not necessarily market-based? Well, let, let me put it this way. As far as I'm concerned, everything is on the table, and we'll evaluate anything that is brought forth. And again, with, with the caveat that it has to be in the best interest of the ratepayers of New Jersey. Sure. So it, uh, I would say everything's on the table. Yeah, along those lines, and you mentioned it earlier, I mean, New Jersey's in an RTO with 12 other states and the, the District of Columbia. Uh, and each one of those states has a slightly different flavor on what its energy goals are, right? Yes. Um, New, Jer- New Jersey has pursued a fairly aggressive policy as it comes to energy in the region. Other states have taken a more, you know, let the market uh, dictate the outcome approach. How do you, how do you, how do you see this all meshing together? Because I, certainly you would never argue that New Jersey's policy should be you know, forced upon the people of West Virginia or Maryland or Delaware or Pennsylvania. But you're in a regional market where you guys have to have to have to be in the, the same umbrella. How, how does that that work out when state policy goals conflict? That, that, that's a great question, because you're right. The goals in West Virginia are a lot different than the goals here in New Jersey, as an example. Um, we, we, we think there are ways. Uh, to make sure every state comes out ahead in the process, uh, both in terms of reliability, environmental outcomes, and costs. The organization of PJM states, OPSI, unanimously, unanimously said no to Moper. Whether we're talking about West Virginia, or we're talking about New Jersey, or we're talking about Pennsylvania or Kentucky, they said no because it was a state rights issue. And when you get down to a state rights issue, states kind of get the uh, hairs on the back of their neck to stand up a little bit. We have the right to determine our generation mix. We started from two principles. Costs for states not participating in the clean energy market should not increase as a result of integrating clean energy targets in the PJM market. And our report finds that prices actually go down for most states. Reliability obviously is critical. So we need PJM to be looking at the total of all clean and emitting resources and then selecting a resource, then selecting a resource mix that meets state clean energy targets and maintains reliability at the lowest price for the ratepayer. 
We are beginning our outreach to our state partners ahead of PJM stakeholder phase two in an attempt to refine clean energy procurement strategies that are favorable to all PJM states. And OPSI, Organization of PJM States, is a great vehicle to debate those issues. And we do, and we have our monthly meetings, and we discuss very frankly what's in the best interest of our RTO and what's in the best interest of our individual states. So I think ultimately we can come to a satisfactory agreement that is beneficial to all states, coastal states and those states inland. And again, those objectives are sometimes vastly different. I'm intrigued to hear what, what OPSI's plan is for, for threading that needle, because, you know, as we've mentioned, it's, it's becoming a, a harder needle to thread. My knowledge of the history of PJM's markets maybe doesn't go back all that far, but from what I understand, you know, in the beginning, up until fairly recently, there were always, there's always been enough like undefined gray area between opposing interests on any, any given issue that each side could get a little bit more of what they wanted without really impacting the, the other side or creating zero sum situations where, you know, only one side can win in this. That seems to be changing. Are we at a point yet where there's no unclaimed territory left in these markets and something has to give in order for them to continue to deliver the value that you're seeking uh, for New Jersey specifically? I, I think the one positive, and, the, and I, I should say there are many positives, but one of the positives of SOPSI is the ability to set and debate the issues and debate them as intelligently and as uh, clear-minded as possible. And I, I, I just wish the United States Senate could do the same thing uh, and, and sit down and debate issues that are relative to the citizens of this country. As our recent report makes clear, we do see the need for the markets to fundamentally, fundamentally evolve. It is clear, as the PJM board has acknowledged, that yesterday's rules will not sufficiently develop tomorrow's grid. Let me just ask one question, because I mean, I mean, I mean, New Jersey obviously is, has been very out in front on the climate issue and has put out some very aggressive clean energy goals. And you're seeing a lot of new development in New Jersey in the renewable space. And I mean, I have to imagine, I mean, do you foresee any fossil plants being built in New Jersey or is that era largely over in New Jersey? As we sit here right now, no. Okay, okay. And it sounds like some of the current fleet, there's some efforts. I mean, there are, there are some fossil generators in, P, or excuse me, in New Jersey right now. And it sounds like, you know, there's some, there's some efforts all underway to sort of phase those out as, as well. Is that fair? Well, uh, that, that is fair. Uh, but I, I, there, there is one caveat here. And I, I think we have to remember this as we go forward. Uh, any state that's involved in Governor Murphy is, in my opinion, the greenest governor in the United States. And his vision is a, an aggressive one and one that is going to mitigate the effects of climate change. But we need right now things like nuclear power, 
we need natural gas. And you might sit there and say, well, why do you need this when your uh, goals are so aggressive and, and you're so committed to uh, clean energy and so on? We need a bridge. We don't have enough clean energy generation today to say, okay, we're going to shut down the nukes. Or, okay, we're going to shut down all the gas, natural gas generating facilities. We have to use those as bridges to get us to our goal. And that goal, as I've said before, is 100% clean energy by 2050. Our goal is 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind by 2035. Our goal is to continue to increase our solar industry. Our goal is to infuse our energy efficiency programs. Because the energy you don't use is the cheapest energy you have. So we're, we're attacking this from multiple directions. Yeah, and, and you said something earlier that I think is important, too. And, and a, lot, a lot of times it doesn't get recognized in the debate. You want to make this transition to clean energy, but you don't want to compromise reliability along no, the way. We and can't. that's right. Exactly. And I think that's important for and, and that's going to matter. Right. As we get deeper and deeper into this renewable penetration conversation, um, making sure we're keeping keeping our commitment to reliability because nobody wants the consequences of of not having enough juice on the grid. Now, in, in December and January, when you turn the heat on, you want to make sure you have heat. Correct. So, I mean, it, it uh, and, and I, I continue to talk to our environmental brothers and sisters whose goals are admirable, but we have to take it prudently and a step at a time. Well, that was a great transition there, President. We next wanted to talk about offshore wind, and you just mentioned it. The board just approved an additional 2,700 megawatts of offshore wind in addition to the 1,000 megawatts approved in 2019, bringing the total contracted offshore wind capacity for the state to 3,700 megawatts, just over half of the goal of 7,500 megawatts by 2035 set by Governor Murphy. What made this second award so compelling to execute right now? And what was different compared to round one? We have a very ambitious goal, as, as you indicated. And the board's decision to make these awards was guided by, I think, several factors. First, these projects offer clean energy generation, which will aid in combating the climate change by powering over 1.6 million homes. They also inject $3 billion into New Jersey's economy, create over 10,000 jobs, and they solidify our goal of being a supply chain hub for the entire East Coast offshore wind industry. This is monumental. And when we talk about clean energy, we talk about the cost of it. But rarely do we talk about the economic benefits of it. And there are tremendous economic benefits, as I've just alluded to here. And job opportunities, job training opportunity, and ultimately billions of dollars into the New Jersey economy. In addition, we felt that diversity in the de developers, because 
in this second solicitation, we split the award between two developers. Was critical to really to create a robust competition and drive down the cost of future solicitations because we will have solicitations every two years through 2028 until we reach that 7,500 megawatts, which will be completed in the water by 2035. This is so exciting. And selecting two developers has the potential to expand the economic benefits and can provide those benefits to the broader range of New Jersey residents than any single award. I wanted to say, I thought the solicitation to the awards were very interesting, particularly for that, to go back to what you were saying earlier about the economic impact in that they specifically had requirements for the uh, awardees to develop manufacturing centers uh, for these. So you're basically having your awardees, you're requiring them to create the facilities to do more of this is what it seemed like to me. Um, How important was that in that particular part of it in the award? I mean, I, I assume that that was something like from the beginning that you said to them, hey, not only are we looking to award this, but we are looking for someone to build the facilities to continue doing this for, for, for the future. That was very important. Yeah. Very important. And our goal from the start has been to make New Jersey the hub of the supply chain for the entire East Coast. And you can't be that unless you have some manufacturing facilities along the coast, which we are currently working on, and providing those kinds of manufacturing facilities that are going to aid in getting those turbines into the water. And I I, want to remind everyone that these turbines, for the most part, are going to be 10 to 15 miles off the coast. So unless you have very good eyesight, you're barely going to see these. And... We're talking about when it's all done, millions of homes, millions of customers receiving their energy from offshore wind generation. The wind doesn't stop blowing out 15 miles off the coast. You will not lose your television reception, I assure you. (laughs) I haven't heard that one yet. That's a new one. (laughs) Yeah, you will not. as, As some folks have suggested. Oh, wow. Some folks who have uh, should know better. But be that as it may, we don't have to deal with those folks right now. And uh, it, it's gratifying to see the enthusiasm for clean energy. And again, as I said, you know, we all admit it's expensive. However, we have to look at the economic benefits of it too. Mm-hmm. Let's look at solar for an example. I can build a solar array today for half the price of what it was in 2007. The prices continue to drop as more and more of this is developed. So we cannot dismiss that. Yeah, and that, that's an important point. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the view issue, and that's sort of been the one, fo- the one issue that a lot of the critics of offshore wind have pointed to. But the other one is, is cost. And, and, and yes, I mean, as you said, this this is a very expensive compared to other forms of generation, including other forms of renewable generation. You know, offshore winds costs are, are higher. You're right. They, they certainly did come down, you know, from around one to round two. But 
maybe give us a little insight into, you know, behind closed doors at the BPU when, I mean, cause New Jersey does have expensive electricity rates compared to other states. There's a lot of reasons for that. And, and certainly you don't want to foist, um, foist unnecessary charges on your consumers. Cause ultimately it's your consumers are going to have to be paying for this. How do you, how do you think about that and balance this all out? And you mentioned the economic development side and that, that obviously plays a factor, but these are tough decisions, right? I mean, you're, you're spending a lot of money here for your consumers. Maybe get us inside that room and just give us a little insight in how you think about the costs that, as you said, are out of market for these resources and, and how you balance that uh, with your other responsibilities to your consumers. Our primary concern is the impact on the consumer. And that's mm-hmm. a direct directive from the governor. That's his primary concern. And that's why when we sit down and debate these things at the BPU, the first thing we look at, what kind of impact is this going to have on the consumer? Keeping in mind that we're all ratepayers. You and I are ratepayers. So it's going to impact us. That's why I have always professed that we have to be prudent and take it step by step. And again, to our environmental brothers and sisters, I want it done yesterday too. However, we have to be prudent in how we approach this. Do we want to stop burning natural gas? Of course, but we're not ready to do that. It's vitally important that when that switch is thrown, we're ready. And that's going to be a long time down the road. So I want people to be prepared for that. We talk about offshore wind. There are a lot of interested parties when you're dealing with offshore wind. Shipping lanes. New Jersey has the second largest seaport, Newark Elizabeth, in the country. Those shipping lanes are extremely important. So any offshore wind that we put out there has to accommodate those shipping lanes. Our commercial fishermen, big industry in New Jersey, as it is probably in every coastal state, we have to accommodate that. So there are a lot of things that we have to look at. It's not just a matter of putting a turbine up in the water. It's looking at the various possibilities or potential of harming certain aspects of our society. It's to help our society, not harm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, that's well said. And, and ultimately, uh, yeah, it's all state regulators have, regulators have to know how to balance a lot of things really well. And, you know, this seems a particularly challenge area to do so. So uh, hats off to you for, 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 for being involved in, you know, such a such a such a unique balancing act, and 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 maybe that's a great segue to the last question we wanted to ask about offshore wind, and that that involves transmission. I mean, you guys obviously approved the projects, the development, the generation offshore, but you got to bring that energy onshore via the transmission system. And you you had a terrific technical conference talking about some of the upgrades that are going to be necessary all along the East Coast, actually, in order to integrate all this offshore wind, and. Um, yeah, give us your thoughts on transmission. Obviously, transmission costs money. Any sense on how much it's going to cost to bring this offshore wind onshore? And then um, 
who's going to pay for it? Because I think you've already said uh, New Jersey's going to pay for some of it, but you don't think you should pay for all of it. But right. just give us your thoughts on transmission. Well, we, we've entered into a first-of-its-kind state agreement approach with PJM, uh, which, in essence, what we're going to be doing is relying on their expertise and their research on transmission. Now, obviously, the wind turbines are going to look nice out there, but we have to, as you say, get that energy onshore. And that's why I think a regional approach is necessary. How many spots along the coast do we want that energy to be transmitted to? Do we want hundreds of different transmission lines or do we want a half a dozen transmission lines? And hopefully with PJM's expertise, we can find some of those answers. Using the PJM competitive planning process though, allows us to deliver on our commitment to keeping these costs as low as possible while still providing the benefits of a coordinated transmission approach. As you mentioned, the state agreement approach contemplates costs being borne by New Jersey ratepayers, and that understanding is reflected in our November 2020 order initiating the state agreement approach. However, it would not make sense for others to be allowed to use the facilities paid for 100% by New Jersey ratepayers and not share in any of the costs. These are going to be interesting discussions. Someday, there is almost certain to be a north-south offshore wind backbone. We expect that New Jersey grid, that the New Jersey grid would be a part of that. When that happy day comes, we would expect that the cost we incur being a first mover would be included in the larger cost allocation. New Jersey ratepayers must not be at a first mover disadvantage. Hence, a regional approach. Hence, working with the state agreement approach with PJM, getting expertise advice, starting to solicit through PJM, transmission developers. Very complex issue, and one that's going to require cooperation of the entire region. So it sounds like you're saying that the cost allocation discussions and, and determinations should be made on a federal level as opposed to the RTO level? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying right now, I think we have to look at it on an RTO basis. I think eventually we may have to look at it on an entire country approach. Mm -hmm. Because... If our friends in West Virginia are still burning coal, as an example, and there's no criticism, I understand what's going on there. Much of what we do in New Jersey is, can be negated by that burning. So I, I, I think it's important that we all try to get on the same page. But I think initially it has to be a regional approach, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And the other thing too that makes a lot of sense, and you said it, um, uh, you said a few minutes ago, is that you want the transmission process around offshore wind to be competitive, yes. and using that, you know, the competitive aspects of FERC Order One Thousand to help drive down the cost of transmission, I think, is is important. Um, and 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 hopefully that does that does serve to reduce the costs that eventually get paid for consumers. But, you know, I'll just maybe add a little commentary here because I, I did sit through the BPU session on the transmission aspects of offshore wind. I was really fascinated because, I mean, if you combine New Jersey's goals with Maryland's goals and, and other goals and Virginia's goals, you're talking about 14,000 megawatts of offshore wind uh, that's that, that needs to come onshore. And that could have very simple. PJM has traditionally been a west to east uh, flowing grid. And now with the significant amount of generation in the east, you know, the flows could be going in a different direction and the transmission upgrades actually could stand deep into, into the RTO in order to accommodate that. So yeah, I think this transmission discussion is really going to be a fascinating to watch over the next several years, yeah. particularly as these uh, resources come online. I, I agree. And, and, and we can't forget, even though they're not part of the RTO, the initiatives by the state of New York. Yep. And, um, some people think we're uh, one of the boroughs of New York and, <laughs> and and one of the sections of Philadelphia, but New Jersey is New Jersey. What happens in New York is going to have a dramatic effect on the offshore wind industry. And so when I'm talking about a regional approach, I'm not only talking about our own RTO, but the New York ISO. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. But as you said, also New Jersey is New Jersey, and that's right. New Jersey has its own energy master plan and has its own energy goals. And let's let's talk about your energy master plan just a little bit and your broader goals. We sort of touched on this earlier, but um, New Jersey, by current law and current executive order, is going to have forty percent of the megawatts consumed in New Jersey with a ZEC association associated with it. That's a zero emission credit from the state's nuclear facilities in Salem County. Um, and of course, I'm assuming there the board just approved, uh, I think those at the 2025, um, assuming the board continues to approve that they'll have 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind. You're going to have 50% of your megawatts associated, uh, with a rec. You're going to have 2,000 megawatts of storage. Um, and these are all very aggressive targets, but when it put it all together, um, it looks like New Jersey is actually potentially subsidizing more than it, it needs. Give us a sense on uh, how uh, how all these energy goals mash together. Well, I, I, I'm not uh, sure we're, we have more than what we need, but what we do need is to get to 100% clean energy. And what you described only takes us approximately 80%. Remember that offshore wind, for example, is a carve-out to the RPS. So we need to be careful not to double count. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Additionally, uh, there's one element of the energy master plan that you don't reference is the significant anticipated growth in demand forecasted by our modeling. The deep electrification demand by our admissions goal, according to the energy master plan, will require a substantial increase in supply over the coming decades. The energy master plan forecasts over 50% increase in New Jersey demand prior to 2050 
to reach the least cost decarbonization scenario. Wow. That's significant. Yep. Just as an example, the EPM's least cost pathway envisions 330 kilowatt light duty EVs on the road by 2025 and 75% of medium duty vehicles and 50% of heavy duty vehicles electrified by 2050. In excess of 40% of our carbon is emitted, emitted by transportation, a major area that we have to attack, and we are. Electric vehicles is a major program that we, are, uh, that we have initiated, and we also give grants on the hood. When you go in and buy that electric vehicle, they take the price right off the price of the car. Electrification of our transportation system is vital. Let's not mistake the scale of the undertaking here. This is a transformational reimagining of the grid that only happens once in a generation. We're in an energy revolution. This time, the stakes are particularly we have to be vigilant and continue in the electrification of our transportation industry. And that includes buses, that includes trucks, that includes cars. And we have to ensure the fact that as I'm sitting on the New Jersey Turnpike in traffic, that what I'm admitting is good for the air. Right now, it's not. Yeah, and that's that's an excellent point about the demand side and the electrification side, because you're right, there are a heck of a lot of cars in New Jersey. Um, and if, uh, if if climate's going to be addressed, those cars have to be part of the solution. There's no doubt about it. And that will have a corresponding impact on on power demand. So that's a that's a really strong point. And 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 we have to make sure our grid is ready to accept this. Absolutely. And, yeah. and every time I talk to the leaders of our utilities, emphasize the point. Is your grid, is the grid ready to accept more solar interconnections? Will it be ready to accept offshore wind interconnections? Is it ready to accept more electrification in general? We have to be ready. And that's another challenge ahead of us. On that, I was looking for a place to interject this since it's timely. Governor Murphy recently signed into law provisions that give the BPU the authority to override rejection by state local governments of transmission siting because as state Senate President Stephen Sweeney, no relation, said, we're not going to let nimbyism shut this down. This being offshore wind development and nimbyism, of course, referring to people who object to being personally impacted by construction of infrastructure for the public good by saying, not in my backyard. Do you foresee any potential issues with that top-down approach to decreeing where infrastructure will be built? I think you're always going to have opposition. Uh, even if your cause is pure and constructive and for the general good. Unfortunately, you're always going to have opposition. I hope em eminent domain does not have to be used. 
we are not going in and destroying or, or when we bring this power on land, we're not going in to destroy any community. When it's done, they won't even know it's there, honestly. And as I said before, when we were talking about OPSI and, and, and states coming to agreement, we all have to be on the same page. We all have to be on the same page if we are intent on mitigating, I keep using the term, but it's so vitally important. If we are intent on mitigating the effects of climate change, we have to be all on the same page. Nobody likes government saying you have to do this or that. Believe me, I was a mayor. I didn't want anybody coming into my community and telling me what to do. But sometimes we have to look at the general welfare, the general good. It's like, do we, do we get vaccinated or not? Well, it's not for you necessarily, it's to protect other people. Because it's not all about you. As much as we would like to think, and the same thing is true here, it's about protecting and preserving what we have. Simple message. Yeah, I actually took down a little bit of a note there for when we write up the synopsis of this, your, your point about uh, you're always going to have opposition, even if your cause is pure. I thought that was a great line, uh, President. I, that really kind of cuts to the, the heart of this. And let me transition there. Uh, we're talking about sort of uh, the, the greater good. Um, Let's talk about the relationship that you have had and that OPSI in general has had with PJM. You have been, uh, as, as I personally know, um, you know, one of the more vocal critics of PJM. You know, in fact, I interviewed you for an article several years ago in which you threatened to pull New Jersey out of PJM because you weren't getting the engagement that you were seeking from the management. There's since been a major, if not nearly total management and governance shakeup there. Do you think your comments played a role in that? And do you still have concerns about PJM's engagement with states? First of all, no, I, I, don't, I don't think my comments had anything to do with that. Uh, I, I, I think PJM, and this is only conjecture on my part, um, was looking at it and, and realizing that the relationship between PJM and the states was not a very good one. And, you know, we're all part of the RTO. And yes, I did threaten to pull us out of uh, uh, PJM. Uh, the management structure has changed. The management leadership has changed. Uh, and we have come a long way since then in our relationship, as I indicated earlier. And again, I don't want to speculate uh, what role my comments may have played. I am delighted with the new PJM administration and their ability to continue to work in good faith with the board and our staff. I really am. While we're, we will always have our natural differences uh, with PJM, the new administration has committed to an open and collaborative culture that we surely recognize and embrace. That's all. States only want to be listened to. We don't expect them to do everything we suggest. We are actively engaged with PJM across a wide range of subjects. And their professionalism, collaboration, and efforts 
are much appreciated. Let's just say the status of our relationship today is much, 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 and I can continue on, improved. That's 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 great to hear. And you you mentioned your staff at the BPU. Uh, we'd probably be remiss without you know, giving a shout out to to, to Joe and Abe and, and their team uh, and the, the efforts that they, they you know their interaction with PJM. I think having you know when you have uh, terrific staff like that being able to engage with uh, the RTO, I think that helps a lot as I, well. I have, and I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, because I have the best staff in state government. Not only are they smart, but they're committed to the vision and the journey of the governor and the BPU. And it is my honor and privilege to work with each and every one of them. And you just named a couple of them. And uh, it is really gratifying to see the kind of work that they put out on a daily basis. And I am so proud of each and every one of them. And I'm proud of the achievements that the PPU has accomplished over the past three and a half years. In addition, we can't forget, in addition to our regulatory responsibilities, you know, we still have to make sure all these utilities play nice in the sandbox. In addition to all of our clean energy initiatives. So they're the greatest, the greatest. Yeah, it takes a village, that's for sure. It sure does. <laughs> Uh, we are hitting the home stretch here, President. So uh, let's get to rapid fire time, in which we pelt you with questions so fast and furious that you have no choice but to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. First up, pick a favorite: Bon Jovi or Springsteen? Bon Jovi. Garden State Parkway or New Jersey Turnpike? New Jersey Turnpike. Pork roll or Taylor ham? Oh, Taylor ham. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Phillies, Yankees, or Mets? Yankees. Okay, okay. Uh, Giants, Jets, or Eagles? Giants. Okay. okay. Diane Solomon or Lee Solomon? Oh, jeez. You're putting me in a bad spot here. <laughs> this, was, <laughs> this was Glenn's question. I just want to point that out. Glenn put this my, one. My, uh, both have uh, – uh, one is currently my colleague, and the other was my colleague, uh-huh. who is now right. a Supreme Court justice. So you want me not to say the Supreme <laughs> Court justice, or you want me not to say – my colleague. I, I will say my colleague. Uh, there you go. <laughs> we, 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 we pull no punches here on the GT Power <laughs> Hour. All right. Favorite shore town? LBI. Okay. All right. All right. We asked New Jersey Rate Council Stephanie Brand this when she was on the show, and I just thought her answer was intriguing, so I'll pose it to you. The, the Jersey Shore Sound which comprises artists like Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons through Springsteen, Bon Jovi, and uh, current acts like uh, Gaslight Anthem, is said to be partially characterized by a sense of being the underdog. Is that a theme that resonates in New Jersey? And if so, why? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, and that's a great question, and I know it's rapid fire, but I, I need to look. Go ahead. New Jersey, New Jersey has been sandwiched in between New York and Philadelphia, right? or is sandwich. And, you know, you have the Philadelphia Media Center and you have the New York Media Center. Where's the New Jersey Media Center? So, yeah, I, I think there's a certain degree of uh, complex, if you will, uh, and so on. But uh, let's say the governor has put us with green energy on the map mm-hmm. and, uh, and New Jersey is second to no one. 
We are the Garden State, and we will continue to lead this country to a better environment and a better Earth. Follow up to that one. Some New Jerseyans seem to have a very strong love-hate relationship with New York. Are you among them? Oh, I love New York. Okay. All right. No, All right. Okay. I, I love going into the city and so on. No, I, I, I love it. I wouldn't want to live there, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Does Central Jersey exist? <laughs> yes. All right. Toughest part about being the president of the BPU and then corollary to that best part. Toughest part is the administrative aspect. You know, every coming and going of the uh, agency rests with me. Final decision on anything rests with me. That, that, that's the most difficult in hoping that I make the right decisions. Uh, the best part, seeing what we're doing. Yeah. Seeing the uh, fact that we are hopefully making a difference uh, every day that we go into work. And if this is the way I end my career, I could think of no better way. On that topic, you've been a teacher, a mayor, a lobbyist, and political staffer, and now BPU president. What's your next job after this one? <laughs> I have no agenda after this okay. one. <laughs> You're not going to be a TikTok dancer? I saw your Twitter video on Earth well, Day, I, president. I, I know. Well, I, I do dance. Uh, not well, but uh, I do dance, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe a TikTok dancer. That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, all right. You heard it here first. Okay, um, you've been a commissioner for fifteen years. The average length of a state commissioner's term is three point two years. What's your secret? I guess I fooled a lot of people. <laughs> um, I, I think one of as and as you know from my biography, I was first nominated by Governor Cody. And, uh, and of course, in New Jersey, we have the Senate uh, uh, has to approve those nominations. And I was fortunate enough to be approved. And then uh, Governor Christie came into power. And uh, as you know, the board is comprised of five commissioners. And there are no, um, by state law, you can't have more than three of the same political party. And uh, Governor Christie needed a Democrat, and he reappointed me. Uh, and then he reappointed me a second time for the same reason. And then, of course, Governor Murphy was elected and not only reappointed me, but uh, appointed me as president of the board, which has been one of the greatest honors of my professional career to work so closely with the governor and, and, and to do so many positive things, I hope, for the state of New Jersey. Okay. Uh, final question, and this is—I mean, this is a—this is a big one. Give okay. our give our listeners a reason to visit New Jersey. Oh, I can give you a hundred reasons. <laughs> uh, first of all, we have 130 miles of beautiful coastline. Uh, so many people come to our state to vacation, uh, and uh, and so on. We have mountain skiing areas. In addition to that, we have forests. We have. The best tomatoes in the world, <laughs> Jersey tomatoes. I've heard that. Um, and uh, New Jersey is just a crossroads of the American Revolution. So many different sites to see. More battles were fought in New Jersey during the Revolution than any other region in the country. So there's a lot to see. And you'll find out 
that it's not what exit off the turnpike you live, but that it's a diverse state, a beautiful state that gets a bad rap. Uh, and we have the best pizza in the world. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wow, wow. I think there might be some other areas who would uh, challenge you on that, President. But we'll, we'll have to have them on, a, on a, n- another episode. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's now time for the section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to people whom we think need it. President, I hope you were prepped for this. You have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere, on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Who are you going with and what are you saying? I know it wouldn't make any difference, but for four years, I was debating via television and social media with Donald Trump. And that debate, many times through his surrogates, got rather heated. And... The idea that freedom and that the American Constitution are sacred and no one has the right to dismantle or to weaken those institutions and that Constitution. And that you're in an office as an elected official, which I have had the privilege of being, to serve, not yourself but the constituents you represent. And anyone who holds an elected office, and this may sound cheesy in this world today, but your first obligation, Donald, is to the people you represent and not to yourself. That's what I would say to him. Well, that sounds like good advice to me. Glenn, what do you have for us this month? Yeah, and actually, I have a sign of a similar piece of advice, uh, but I'm going to take a broader audience. Um, and this goes to regulators and legislators um, across the country uh, who deal in energy issues. But on July 20th, First Energy entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Ohio. And we, we've covered this on prior podcasts. I think a lot of folks are familiar with what's happened in Ohio uh, with some of the scandals out there. But as part of this agreement that First Energy entered into, they agreed to a certain set of facts. They agreed to pay a $230 million fine. They agreed to the government's filing of a single charge of conspiracy to commit honest services, wire fraud. And they agreed to cooperate with investigators. And if First Energy holds up their end of the bargain, the prosecutors won't bring charges in three years. And the document is rather unique in our industry, although Exelon didn't enter into something similar, but it's really something that I would encourage legislators and regulators, including our our guest here today, to actually read because the particular set of facts that First Energy agreed to is is quite compelling. Um, It's a really interesting read and it it, it paints quite a picture of how things were getting done in Ohio and more importantly, how they shouldn't have gotten done. And I should point out that these are only First Energy's uh, version of the facts, and it has not been agreed to by the other um, you know, public figures, if you will, in uh, the Ohio situation. So my advice this month is to regulators and legislators, particularly those in regions with First Energy companies, um, to one, read the document. I would really encourage folks to read the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. And thanks to the emails and text messages, we get incredible insights into how involved 
company executives were at the highest level and how they made decisions to spend enormous sums of money to get the public policy results they desired. And number two, you should be appalled by what you read. Um, Again, First Energy is agreeing to these facts and they paint an absolutely horrible picture of corrupt leadership at their own company. And kudos to the new management for cooperating with authorities and agreeing to these facts. Um, But shame on the prior management for putting the company in this position in the first place. And then finally, my last piece of advice is once you've read it, reacted to it, vow to approach your job with ethics and integrity. And this is very consistent with what you just heard the president just say. We have yet to hear from the public officials who are implicated in the deferred prosecution agreement. But certainly what we have now does not paint a pretty picture of people that were entrusted by the public to uphold the public's interest. Time will tell what happens to those public officials. But for those of you who are in public service, go to great lengths to make sure that what happened in Ohio doesn't happen in your state. And that's my two minutes of advice this month, Rory. Well, that was really good. And there's uh, so many other things that we could have talked about with offshore and transmission, but we definitely put in a solid session here. President, thank you very much for joining us. Any final thoughts for our audience? Well, first of all, thank you again. I've really enjoyed uh, this time with you and I look forward to future times with you. It has been uh, really enlightening for me. Yes, I have one final thought. Please. Let's all get on the same page as far as climate change is concerned. And it is important that we all, just like in in a democracy, participate. We're not talking about a spectator sport here. Just like when we're talking about democracy, we're not talking about a spectator sport. We have to be involved. So let's all get on the same page and let's mitigate the effects of climate change together. Well, we're certainly looking forward to having you back in the future to talk about how successful you have been uh, with those initiatives. Glenn, how about you? Any final thoughts this month? And no, just a thanks to President Fertiliso and his team at the BPU for for joining us for the last hour and working with us for all these numbers a year. It's always a I was actually born in New Jersey, so New Jersey has a special (laughs) spot in my heart as well. So, um, you know, it's always great to to have these conversations and relive some of those days. So thank you, President. Really appreciate it. I know I knew you were born in New Jersey. That's why I like you. (laughs) How about it? And I, I don't know about the pizza thing. I got to think about that. Mac, oh. and Manco, you know, <laughs> wow. Mac and Manco on the Ocean City Boardwalk is pretty darn good. So that, that, that he might be right about that. Well, I, I have to say that as a native of central Pennsylvania, I spent years in the dark about the wonders of New Jersey. But now my, my fiance, who's from Bergen County, New Jersey, has opened my eyes and we go to uh, the shore often and we go many places around the city. So I am I am no longer afraid to cross the Delaware River. There you go. Yeah, go. <laughs> Want to say thank you to our audience for listening this month. Uh, thank you to the president and his staff for uh, making yourselves available to talk about all these issues. And until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.